So good news. The left has hit on a hot new solution to supposed systemic racist brutality from American police departments. Disband the police. This interesting notion has picked up steam in recent weeks. Leftists continue to label cops systemically racist. So Jessica Dissou, who's a black activist, told Fox News' Megyn Kelly the other night, quote, we need to abolish the police, period. When asked by Megyn Kelly, who would then protect black people, she answered, quote, we need to come up with community solutions. The problem in high crime communities has been historically the lack of police. And the community solution that usually rises in the wake of such a dearth of police is gangs murdering each other. If people can't rely on the cops to keep the peace, they join a gang to ensure the threat of revenge if they're harmed. Joe Levy of the LA Times has written in her book Ghetto Side, quote, African Americans have suffered from just such a lack of criminal, effective criminal justice, and this, more than anything, is the reason for the nation's long-standing plague of black homicides. Lack of police left, left ample room for vigilantism. If the cops won't protect you, you find somebody who will. One of the most horrific costs of Jim Crow was the unwillingness of white police departments to police black-on-black murder. Nonetheless, the hot new solution, according to the left, is to disband the only people who can ensure that the state's monopoly on violence means something. Thus, we find idiot actors like Mark Ruffalo tweeting, quote, defund bad cops and police departments, tell Obama, we need an executive order, hashtag defund police. What's the real agenda here? Well, it's twofold. First, if you believe that the cops are, as Professor Molina Abdullah has said, an occupying force, the only solution is to end the occupation. Second, there's a deeper goal of removing the rule of law from the system because the system itself is supposedly corrupt. If the police are the enforcement arm for America, and if America's racist, the only way to fight American racism is to disband the enforcement arm. What will spring up in its wake? Community solutions! Yay! A new society flourishing in the absence of America's historic ills. Only one problem. What will actually flourish in the absence of the Americanism and law enforcement arm is chaos and murder. There's a reason Rudy Giuliani, the guy that the Black Lives Matter folks now hate more than anybody else, he's responsible for saving thousands of black lives during his tenure. America isn't racist. It's law enforcement isn't the enforcer for a racist system. Remove the cops, you get an uptick in crime that harms the communities lacking the cops, minority communities. But if the left wants to build a brand new world, I guess a few thousand black lives are apparently worth the cost. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. The tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Okay, so we have a ton to get to today. And of course, welcome to Facebook Live, where we are operative, where our show is currently streaming, where all the wonders of the earth are available to you. If you just go there right now, and then later, if you give us eight bucks a month and we pry it from your fingers, then you'll actually be able to watch the entire show, you stingy bastards. So in any case, <laughs> make sure that you go there right now. In fact, I'm going to tweet it out right now. I should have done this earlier, but you know what? Too late. It's up. Okay, fine. Okay, so lots to get to today. We'll start off with President Obama in Dallas. It turns out the President of the United States is not just the world's crappiest president. He's also one of the world's crappiest humans. So... Five cops get murdered in Dallas by an anti-white racist who says he's there to kill cops. And President Obama pretends for, for days. I don't know why this, why would this happen? What are we even, how, how do I know? It could have been anything. Who knows? Maybe he had bath soaps. Right? And, and now he, he goes to the funeral and the families are in the crowd, right? The family members are in the crowd. And he starts off in the first 10 minutes of the speech or so, is, you know, pedestrian, nice, we're all together, we like cops, yay. And then President Obama cannot help himself in any way. He's incapable. He's incapable of helping himself. He's a narcissist, and he's a racist. And because he's a narcissist racist, he feels the need to start running off the mouth about how cops are the real racists in American society. Now, remember, dead cops shot by a racist. But the real problem is the cops. The real problem is Americans ra uh, America's racist society. And this is you know, pretty egregious stuff. Here's President Obama. He did a bunch of things in this speech that were really bad. One of the things he did, and you'll see it in a second, is he equated the murder of the cops with the, with the killing of Philando Castile in Minnesota and Alton Sterling in Louisiana. Okay, we still don't know any of the circumstances surrounding either of those killings. We still don't know. The one in Louisiana may have been a good shoot. The one in Minnesota, we have no idea whether it was a good shoot or not. We just don't know. There's no information. We certainly know what happened in Dallas, right? We know that an anti-white racist decided to murder white cops. We certainly know that's what happened. But listen to him equate the two. I see people who mourn for the five officers we lost, but also weep for the families of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. In this audience, I see what's possible. Okay, and the, and the, the cops behind him, you can see, are not cheering, right? They're not clapping. And the reason they're not clapping is because 
to equate those two things, to suggest that the police are targeting people like Philando Castile the same way that this guy, this, this piece of garbage targeted police officers, is evidence-free, it's gross, it's despicable, but that's what President Obama does. And then he continues along those lines. Remember, this is at a funeral memorial for cops who were shot by a racist. Remember that. The families are in the audience watching this. If they just panned this camera over a little bit, you would see the five empty seats with flags on them for the cops who were murdered. And here's President Obama at that memorial service because he just can't help himself because he's not a good person. Here's President Obama saying that police departments are still rife with the legacies of slavery. We also know that centuries of racial discrimination, of slavery and subjugation and Jim Crow, they didn't simply vanish with the end of lawful segregation. They didn't just stop when Dr. King made a speech or the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were signed. Race relations have improved dramatically in my lifetime. Those who deny it are dishonoring the struggles that helped us achieve that progress. But we know But America, we know that bias remains. We know it. Smile. Whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or of Middle Eastern descent, we have all seen this bigotry in our own lives at some point. We've heard it at times in our own homes. If we're honest, Perhaps we've heard prejudice in our own heads and felt it in our own hearts. He's lecturing, this is, okay, we can stop it there. He's lecturing, that. he's lecturing the cops about systemic racial bias in police departments at a funeral memorial for five cops who were shot by a racist. Okay, I don't hear him talking about racism in the black community. I don't hear him talk about anti-white racism in the black community. As I mentioned yesterday, by polling data, by polling data, a plurality of blacks think that more blacks think that most blacks are racist than think that most whites are racist in the black community. He never talks about that, right? He talks instead about systemic bias in police departments across the country. On the same day, but as we mentioned yesterday, that there's this new study out from Harvard that says that black people are shot less frequently by officers than white people. I'm still trying to peg down the rest of the data in this study. The, the, the study itself is, is pretty massive. I've been going through the data. I'm actually emailing with the professor's research assistant on this particular study because there's only one table in the study that really matters. It's, it's a long study, but the only thing that really matters is there's, there's one statistic that says that, well, all, all the, first of all, all the statistics you've heard from that study about how the police use force more often on black people and Hispanic people, the vast majority of those statistics do not take into account level of compliance with the cops. So in other words, they say more black people than white people are, are, are victims of force by the cops. But if you don't take into account who's resisting the cops, then that means nothing. There's one statistic where they say that it's more likely that black people are going to have low levels of force, not high levels of force, low levels of force used on them, even in cases of full compliance. I'm trying to nail down what's the source for that statistic because they're not being perfectly clear about what that means. So as soon as I get you that information, I'm happy to bring that to you. and We can discuss what the ramifications are of that. Does that mean there's systemic bias and all the rest? But first, I want to nail that down because they're basing it on New York stop and frisk statistics that are, it's not clear where they're getting their full information or if they're reading too much into it. So I'll get you that information, but it doesn't matter. He's standing there at a funeral, four cops, of whom there is no racist activity imputed, and he's saying, America, we know there's bias. We know there's bias. across. The, we know it, because I say it. It's a, total, it's a tautology. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. We've all experienced it. These terrible white people. Really, really, it's, it's, this is egregious stuff. Then he goes on, he reels off a bunch of meaningless statistics to incite the police. And I'll go through the stats that he's mentioning because he's so full of it. So that if you're black, you're more likely to be pulled over or searched or arrested. More likely to get longer sentences. More likely to get the death penalty for the same crime. Okay, so he says a few things there, and all of them are basically wrong. So he says, let's see, you're more likely to be pulled over or searched or arrested. You're more, likely to be, you're more likely to be pulled over because you're more likely to be speeding. You're more likely to be arrested because you're more likely to be committing a crime. 
You're more likely to be searched because you're more likely to be committing a crime. Not on an individual level, obviously, as we mentioned yesterday. Just because you're black doesn't mean you're a criminal. But the black population is responsible for a higher percentage of crime than would be suggested by the proportion of the population. He says you're more likely to get longer sentences. This statistic only works if you fail to recognize that black people coming into court and who get longer sentences are getting longer sentences because they have a prior criminal history. That's the only way that stat works. And he says, you're more likely to get the death penalty for the same crime. Actually, murder is significantly under-prosecuted in the black community. Significantly under-prosecuted in the black community, not over-prosecuted in the black community. And when they give the death penalty, by the way, the death penalty is almost entirely based on other circumstances other than just the murder. This is why there aren't thousands and thousands of people on death row around the United States. Because in order to actually get the death penalty, there has to be something particularly egregious that you did connected with the murder, which naturally means that it's not the same circumstance. It's something different. It's something different. So Obama reels off all those statistics. Remember, all of this is at a, I, I can't emphasize this enough, all of this is at a funeral memorial for cops who were murdered by people who hate cops and hate white people. And he's getting up there going, cops are terrible, and white people are responsible for systemic racism in the United States. At that event. Just disgusting. And then he continues, and he starts defending the Black Lives Matter agenda. When all this takes place, more than 50 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, we cannot simply turn away and dismiss those in peaceful protest as troublemakers or paranoid. We can't simply dismiss it as a symptom of political correctness or reverse racism. To have your experience denied like that, dismissed by those in authority, dismissed perhaps even by your white friends and co-workers and fellow church members again and again and again, it hurts. Surely we can see that, all of us. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. You know what hurts? Going to somebody's funeral and crapping all over their department. That hurts. Okay, and when he says that we, we can't just, we have to take seriously all experiences. I love when he says things like this. He says, we can't simply dismiss it as a symptom of political correctness or reverse racism. To have your experience denied like that, dismissed by those in authority, dismissed by your white friends, it hurts. Surely we can see that. Okay, I seem to remember a time when the president of the United States said that those of us who were protesting larger government in the Tea Party were a bunch of terrorists. Did he dismiss our concern? Yeah. Did he suggest that we were paranoid? Yeah. I'm old enough to remember when the president of the United States suggested that anybody who said that if you like your doctor, you can't keep your doctor, that you can keep your doctor, that anybody who said that was a lie, I remember him saying you're paranoid if you said that. And just like he says that we're paranoid if we say that you're coming after our guns. We're paranoid. But it's not paranoia. There's nothing wrong with just imputing to law enforcement across the country a broad bias because you had a run-in with a cop. And you can't show the evidence of the run-in with the cop. And you don't know that the run-in with the cop wouldn't have happened the same way if you were white. I mean, this is really gross stuff. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. Again, this is at a funeral memorial. This is so maddening to watch. When the president, it, 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 is, it makes you sick to your stomach. When the president of the United States, the man who's the leader of the free world, is this bad of a human being. It really does make you sick in the pit of your stomach. But President Obama didn't stop there. Following the Rahm Emanuel directive, never let a good crisis go to waste, he uses this funeral now to push for to push for more government spending because this is what he does. Here we go. As a society, we choose to underinvest in decent schools. We allow poverty to fester so that entire neighborhoods offer no prospect for gainful employment. Okay, so he says that we have to spend more money on all sorts of things. He's trying to mirror what the police chief in Dallas said the other day, where he said that we haven't invested in in mental health, for example. And you notice Obama doesn't mirror exactly what the police chief said. The police chief actually said, you're telling us that it's our job to fill the gap left by 70% single motherhood in the black community. You notice Obama doesn't say that one. Obama says, no, no, nothing about that. He says, we, we underinvest in decent schools as though if we just tossed more money at the public schools, this would be fixed. And he says, we allow poverty to fester. You know what allows poverty to fester? You ripping on the cops so they can't provide law and order so no one is willing to invest in an area. That's what causes poverty to fester. And then Obama drops another whopper. He talks about gun control. 
We flood communities with so many guns that it is easier for a teenager to buy a Glock than get his hands on a computer or even a book. Okay, so it's easier to buy a Glock, get your hands on a Glock in the United States than a book or a computer? You have to have been dropped on your head as a baby to believe this. You have to have serious mental deficiencies if you believe this kind of crap. Okay, that is such not, and people clapping for this, like how stupid are you? Okay, I had to get a gun license in order to buy a gun in the state of California. I had to go through a federal background check in order to purchase my handgun. Okay, I buy books all the time. His crappy book is available on Amazon for one cent with no background check. Okay, so the, so the idea that literally one cent for with Dreams for My Father, a paperback, no background check. The idea that it's easier to buy guns anywhere in the United States than a book or a computer is l maybe the stupidest thing any president has ever said. It's ridiculous. And he's doing it again at a funeral, at a funeral memorial for cops. At a funeral. Here's, but here's the thing. There, there's one comment that he made, and this one has basically gone unrecognized. And I think this is the key to everything about the Democrats. I said this yesterday without even having seen the speech, just showing once again that I'm always right. But President Obama drops this amazing line, this amazing In the end, line. it's not about finding policies that work. It's about forging consensus and fighting cynicism and finding the will to make change. Iowa Hawk had a great tweet on this. He says, there's, no, there's nothing more cynical in American life than cynically saying that everyone else is cynical, which is his routine here. But notice, the, the, notice what he says. He says, it's not about finding policies that work. It's not. He doesn't care whether the policies work. It's about forging consensus and fighting cynicism and finding the will to make change. It's all about feelings. Right? It's all about us getting in a room, and then the chief psychiatrist, the commander in psychiatry in chief, he's going to heal our wounds like the God King that he is, the great God being who can save all of us. He's going to get us in a room. We're going to forge consensus. We're going to spill out our feelings on the table. I said yesterday, remember I said this about my wife? That, that we have a deal, which is you have to tell me before the conversation, do you want to just spill out your feelings or you want me to solve the problem? The job of the president is to help solve the problem. He thinks the job of the president, and the Democrats say the job of their, of their politics, is to find meaning and feelings and justify your feelings. That's not what politics is for. If that's what you think politics is for, no problem will ever be solved, particularly in this area. We'll talk more about that. Plus, we got to get to Trump, who's now doing better in the polls and what that means. Go to dailywire.com to become a subscriber. Come on, guys. Eight bucks a month. It ain't going to kill you. I mean, for goodness sake, it's easier to get dailywire.com than it is to get a gun, to get a Glock or a book. You can go to dailywire.com right now, or you can download the rest of the podcast for audio on uh, iTunes and SoundCloud, just like the tens of thousands of others who do, because we are, in fact, the number one podcast, conservative podcast in America. And you can be part of that every single day. So subscribe. Okay. So, continuing along these lines, when they say, what's amazing about this, this, particular, this particular line of thought, that feelings matter more than solutions. Solutions don't matter. The only thing that matters is feelings, right? When you say that, and if your feelings are not based in reality, the feelings become an obstacle to the solution. So, you've had an argument with your spouse, right? And your spouse says, you're always doing something. You're, you, you're always mean about this. And you say, wait, wait no, I'm not. You know, sometimes I, I'm a jerk, granted, but I'm not always mean about that. So, but that's how I feel. Okay, now we can't get to a solution because you're arguing about the status of basic facts. Like, if, if how you feel about the fact is more important than the fact itself, we have no common ground. I can't make you feel differently. If you say, I feel the police have been racist to me in my community— I can say, okay, show me the evidence of a police activity that's racist. We can condemn it together, and then the police person can be punished. Right? That's how I would solve that particular problem. Right? Or if you were going to say there are too many run-ins between cops and, and, and black people, I would say, okay, well, let's have some more cops, and let's have a, a, a feeling of law and order and make sure that we, we enforce all of the rules on cops, obviously, but there's a greater comfort level between the cops and the community because they know they're not the only line of defense between themselves and civilization. That would be a solution, right? But if I say to you, if you say to me, the cops are, are racist and criminal and they're terrible and they're horrible and I feel that. That's been my experience. And I say, well, I need some evidence of that so we can do something about it. And you say, no, no, no. But you're invalidating my feelings. You're invalidating my feelings. Well, then we can't get to a solution, can we? Because everything that I say from then on invalidates your feelings. If I say we need more cops, you say, no, 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 no. My feeling is the cops are bad. And if I say, well, but, but we need evidence of the cop being bad. No, no, no. You're invalidating my experience. What, you don't believe me? 
It's the same thing that the left does with regard to some of these, these high-profile rape cases like University of Virginia. Somebody alleges rape, and we say, that's terrible. That's a horrible thing. Is there any corroboration or evidence? And they go, oh, you must not take rape seriously. You say, well, no, I take rape very seriously. So I want the person who did it to go to jail. Like, that's, that would be good. But, they, oh, but you're, 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 you're making my experience, my experience secondary. I have to because your experience can't be my experience and it can't be the experience of anyone else. It's your experience. We need to get beyond your experience and we need to get to what actually solves the problem. But Obama doesn't want to solve the problem, you see. Because if you stand there as a politician and say you feel somebody's pain, as Bill Clinton used to do, if you say, I feel your pain, much more, much more beneficial political angle, I feel your pain then, here's a solution that's going to hurt. Right? A lot easier to say, I feel your pain, then here's a solution that's, that's going to hurt. The, the speech was just egregious all the way through. Obama finished basically by saying, you know, whites keep dismissing protesters as political correctness or reverse racism. It's just, ugh. ugh. When study after study shows that whites and people of color experience the criminal justice system differently. So that if you're black, you're more likely to be pulled over or searched or arrested. More likely to get longer sentences. More likely to get the death penalty for and the this same is the, crime. We played this already. He, this sort of routine from President Obama, again, it just underscores the fact that he will never let a crisis go to waste or a tragedy go to waste. He's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. And he lies for political gain. And then he stands there and says he's trying to unify us. And he's a liar. He's just a liar. And the media lap it up. The media love this crap because it, it increases the ratings. It gives them new things to cover. When there's a riot, it makes for good TV. And then we can just and, – and, and then there are all the leftist activists on TV who take it upon themselves to basically suggest the cops are the problem. Again, to me, the big story last week was not the killing of Alton Sterling in Louisiana or even the killing of Philando Castile, even though that one looks worse in Minnesota. Any objective person would say the big story last week was a guy took a sniper rifle and shot 11 police officers in the worst attack on police in the United States since 9-11. But that's not what the media are focusing on. So Don Lemon on CNN, he says, stop pretending racism doesn't exist. By the way, no one is pretending racism doesn't exist. All I'm saying is show me evidence so I can stand with you. I can't do it based on you just saying racism exists. What am I supposed to do about that? What's the solution? How does that help anyone? How is any black person in the inner city better off if we all say racism exists, America's racist? You explain to me that one, and I'll join you. Explain to me. Because there's no correlation between saying America is racist and then the solutions you propose. Your solutions are crap, okay? Disbanding the police, having only black cops in black neighborhoods. That didn't seem to help in Baltimore, by the way. The bottom line is what they say is, well, if you can't just acknowledge our feelings, we can't even get started. I don't have to acknowledge feelings to try and find a solution that works for everybody. And it turns out the solution generally has nothing to do with subjective feelings. It generally has to do with what works and what doesn't. Standards of evidence and truth exist regardless of your feelings. And if I allege something happened and I say that it was really bad, I should have to show evidence of that for you to react and for, for you to side with me. You can say you have sympathy for me. I have sympathy for black people who feel like they're being victimized by the police. But I want to know how that solves anything. And when you say society's racist, all you're really saying to young black people is no matter what you do, you're never getting out of here. No matter what you do, you are stuck here forever. So you may as well just say screw it. And you may as well talk back to the police. And you may as well assume they're here to do harm. And you don't talk to them because snitches get stitches. But Don Lemon thinks the most important thing is all the white people in America acknowledging American racism or some such nonsense. It, it is time for us to stop pretending that we don't, that racism doesn't exist, that bias doesn't exist in this culture. And if, if you will allow me, and I share a very personal story that happened uh, this weekend as I was out with friends, we were discussing the Dallas shooting at a bar slash restaurant. And it was two African-Americans, me and someone else, and there were other that were with us in the immediate vicinity, and we were discussing it. And as we were talking about it, my friend is talking about it, who is a black guy. And the, the guy looked at him and said, talking about the Dallas shootings, he said, how does that make you feel? As a and everybody just got quiet and looked like, is this 2016? Is this actually happening? And I swear on a stack of Bibles on my life that this happened just this weekend in a place that you would not even think it happened and or would happen in a place where there are intelligent people there are very liberal people in the sense of the types of people that they um, engage with 
So we have to stop pretending that these things don't happen, that people don't implicit bias, that people, you don't hear uh, words and racism and prejudice sometimes in your own wait, family wait, or with people there? you love. Did I miss the story? What, what, what happened that was so bad? Did I miss the story? Like, maybe I missed it. Seriously, what was the story? Somebody, okay, so somebody got called the N-word, so it might have blocked out. So he says, he says that somebody got called the N-word. Okay, if that guy called, got called out the N-word, you have a national TV show, Don Lemon, why not say his name? Like, really? Just say his name. And then we can, and then we can say, okay, that's a bad guy, and we'll all condemn him, and that'll be that. Right? But you're not doing it. He's saying racism, was that guy a cop? Did he shoot somebody? Or was he just some guy who was hanging around and you heard him say the N-word? How do you know what he did? I mean, this is, this is the problem with all this kind of stuff. Of course they're individual racists. Of course they're individual racists. But that doesn't mean that there's a systemic racism to American society. It doesn't mean that American society is broadly racist. If somebody says the N-word, that guy's a racist. Okay. So now what do we do about it? So now what do we do about it? Because I find that un unpalatable. For goodness sake, I've been spending most of this election cycle fighting people who think it's cool to throw racist memes on Twitter. And this is, but again, it, it, there's no solution here. There's no solution here. It's just you feel better by saying America's racist, and then a bunch of upper crust white people think it makes them better people by saying America's racist, and I'm not them, so I'm not a racist. I can prove I'm not a racist by saying America's racist. And Jameel Hill and Michael Smith, both black folks on, on ESPN, they were very upset. We talked about this yesterday. There's a WNBA game where some people wore Black Lives Matter t-shirts and the cops walked out. And ESPN, which has become, as I've said many times, MSNBC with footballs. It is a leftist network. It is a leftist propaganda network. They're actually broadcasting in real time on ESPN Obama's town hall that's supposed to take place tomorrow on race relations. On ESPN. I didn't realize that had to do with people kicking or throwing or catching balls. I didn't realize that. But here, here are these two commentators on ESPN. Uh, to another serious topic for off-duty police officers in Minnesota uh, working Saturday's Minnesota Lynx game walked off the job after the team wore t-shirts with Black Lives Matter, the name of victims Alton, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, uh, both who were killed by police and a Dallas Police Department emblem, of course, signifying that tragedy. Uh, Castile was killed by an officer in nearby Falcon Heights, Minnesota. Sterling killed in Baton Rouge, uh, now Lieutenant Bob Crow, the president of Minneapolis Police Union, their police union rather, uh, commended the officers for their decision. He also said the officers removed their names from a list to work future games and that others have said they will not work Lynx games. If I'm the Minnesota Lynx, I say, good. Good riddance. Okay. So the good riddance, get out. Fine. So you say these cops who, who don't appreciate you wearing T-shirts with names of people where the, the circumstances aren't even known yet? I'm old, uh, I mean, listen, just a couple of years ago, there were people who were wearing Michael Brown T-shirts and running out onto NFL fields doing hands up, don't shoot. That turned out to be a lie. So it's just, but this is, this is the way that the political game is played. None of this gets to a solution. But as Obama says, solutions don't matter. Who cares about solutions? Solutions are irrelevant. Only justification of feelings. Because here's the end goal, right? The end goal is that he proclaims that everybody who disagrees with him therefore doesn't care about black folks. That's, that's the end goal here. It's the Piers Morgan, you don't care about dead kids and Sandy Hook unless you agree with me. That's Obama's routine. If we can't agree on our feelings then certainly we're never going to get to a solution. He's going to use that logic in reverse. He's going to propose solutions that are completely unpalatable. And then he's going to say, you won't even agree on the feelings. So how can we agree on the solutions? That's, that's where he's going here. And it's just, it's gross. It's really gross. Meanwhile, meanwhile, actual racist shooting, or, or appears to at least be a racially tinged shooting in Chicago, it's certainly a criminal shooting, Laquan McDonald, if you don't remember this particular case, there's a black guy who is, who is, making trouble, I guess, at a McDonald's or something, and somebody called the cops, and he starts walking away from the cops, and the cops shoot him down. And Rahm Emanuel, who's the mayor of the city, is up for re-election at the time, and he basically ensures that no tape comes out at all of this until after his re-election. Jesse Jackson says that. Rahm Emanuel says, no, of course I won't resign. Have you heard any clamor about Rahm Emanuel lately on the whole Black Lives Matter thing? Any clamor? Or because he's a Democrat. You don't, we, no, he's a Democrat, so of course, and we, we never hear about that. Black Lives Matter is only directed at cops. It's never directed at the Democrats who instruct the cops to do bad things, like in the city of Chicago. Now, one of the problems that I have uh, in, in all of this is that Republicans have been caving in on this. Republicans, I mentioned Newt Gingrich and Marco Rubio earlier this week. Trump, too. So here's, here's a quote from, from Donald Trump. He was on Bill O'Reilly's show last night. 
O'Reilly says there's still some black Americans who believe the system is biased against them. The American system, because they're black, they don't get the same kind of shot. They don't get the same kind of fairness whites do. What do you say to them? And Trump says, well, I have been saying even against me, the system is rigged when I ran as a you-know-for-president. I mean, I could see what was going on with the system, and the system is rigged. In other words, now he's making the case that basically black it's rigged against black people, too. This is, this is, the, this is the routine. Here's Donald Trump. But as far as the police are concerned, you say, okay, these two individual things are bad. But are they symptomatic, in your opinion, of a larger problem with American police? that they fear blacks or that they act differently uh, around African-Americans. Do you believe that's in play? Look, it could be. You have to see it. I mean, there are so many individual cases. There are certain cases where this takes place and it's horrible. I mean, somebody will meet, they'll have a commission meet, and the commission may have an answer, but I almost don't care what the commission says because I, you know, I see it with my eyes. I hate what I saw, those two instances. I hate what I saw when somebody guns down all of these policemen and kills five policemen. I hate it. Do you believe that there is a problem in American policing whereby blacks are treated differently than whites do you believe that it could be it's it possible could be. as it could president be. is there anything you can do about could that it could be it could be thank you for that that brilliant moral leadership and guidance donald trump and and how does that make the solution better so presumably the next solution is for president obama to federalize the police forces right send in the doj to crack down on the local cops and suggest that they are better than anybody else and making sure that black people aren't victimized by the local police, again, without evidence. It's just, it, you don't need to cave. I mean, it's so funny. People say that he's a warrior against political correctness. This is not being a warrior against political incorrect, against political correctness. This is, this is being a chicken. It's being a chicken. Okay, well, all of that said, all of that said, Donald Trump did get into it with, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg in, in other news. He got into it with Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I want to talk a minute about what's going to happen at the convention. I don't think there's going to be a full-scale revolt against Trump at the convention. I specifically don't think that because the polls have really narrowed for Trump. So there are a couple of different polls out today. Quinnipiac poll shows Trump up in Florida, shows Trump up in Pennsylvania, shows him tied in Ohio. There's another poll today that shows Hillary up in Pennsylvania. It shows her up in Florida. It shows her basically tied in Ohio. So it's, so it's very close, in other words, in, in all of these swing states. I will point out something that I have been pointing out about these polls for weeks now. In none of the polls, state, federal, any of the polls, is Donald Trump above 42%. So all the polls where Donald Trump is running neck and neck with Hillary are polls where it shows Trump 41, Hillary 39, Trump 39, Hillary 41, Trump 39, Hillary 39. Okay, that's not going to be the actual election result, just so folks know. Okay, that's only 80% of the American population. 20% isn't just going to disappear off the face of the earth. The volatility in the polls is all Hillary. Trump is absolutely consistent. He is always, in national and state polling, between 35 and 41 percent. That is his range, 35 to 42 percent in all of these polls. There hasn't been movement on that in eight weeks. Right? He's absolutely stagnant there, barring some sort of catastrophic change in Donald Trump, not in events. In Donald Trump, he's going to stay there. So the real question becomes, how much do Americans hate Hillary Clinton? How much do Americans hate Hillary? If they hate Hillary enough, then Hillary will drop below Trump in the polls, but if those additional voters don't go to Trump, then she probably still wins. So she's up and down and up and down and up and down. She still has all the advantages, despite the fact that she's the most corrupt candidate in American history. So I just want to point that out because there are a lot of people you're going to hear today saying this means that Trump is surging. Trump isn't surging. Trump is exactly where he was before. Hillary is collapsing. There is a difference. There is a difference. And believe me, I don't think that the media are going to let Hillary full-scale collapse. I think that right now is the dark time for Hillary. I think in six weeks, they're going to turn this around after the convention, after she picks her VP. The media will go all in against Donald Trump, and Donald Trump will start falling behind again. But the, but the Trump unification is indeed taking place, and, uh, and Paul Ryan is, uh, is, is awkwardly defending Donald Trump. And Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, he's saying that he is going to speak at the RNC, which is true. And Rudy Giuliani is going to speak at the RNC. The, the VP pick is supposed to come by Friday. Right now, today, I guess in Indiana, he's in there meeting with Mike Pence. Gingrich has flown to Indiana. Jeff Sessions is flying to Indiana. Chris Christie, I think, is flying to Indiana. So one of two things is there have been a couple of theories as to what's going on with the VP pick. Theory one is that and this was put forward by somebody at the Daily at uh, the Weekly Standard. Uh, the, the theory one is he's bringing all these people and he's actually going to announce a cabinet. 
on Friday, which would be a good move. I think that'd be really smart. I think that if he comes out and he says, okay, Christie's my attorney general, and Gingrich is my chief of staff, and Mike Flynn, this general, this general is, is my new secretary of defense. I don't think he'd be a good secretary of defense, but that's another question. If he announced his whole cabinet, that'd probably be smart. It makes people feel more secure if they feel like there are decent people, or at least people who are plausible, uh, around him. That, that's theory number one. Theory number two is that basically this is now a cage match and that for ratings, Trump will actually put them in Thunderdome and let them battle to the death. And theory number three is my own personal theory, which is that Donald Trump is going to line them up and then have a rose ceremony, and, uh, and like in The Bachelorette, uh, which my wife will not stop watching and it's making me crazy. So, it's, it's, so it's, we'll, we'll see what happens. I don't think any of these, these picks change the game very much, but... This is the good time for Trump. If you're on the Trump bandwagon, this week, next week, the next three weeks are the good time for Trump. So if you're in the betting markets, now's the time when you buy Trump stock, and then you sell Trump stock like two days after the convention. Right? That's the best time to do it. So just, just handicapping this thing. Okay, another issue on which Trump has been in the news is that um, Donald Trump called for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to resign. That's because Ruth Bader Ginsburg ripped into Donald Trump. Uh, she suggested that the country couldn't afford Donald Trump. She's sitting justice on the United States Supreme Court. Right, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, is a wild leftist, and so Donald Trump tweets back at her, Justice Ginsburg of the U.S. Supreme Court has embarrassed all by making very dumb political statements about me. Her mind is shot. Resign. <laughs> and I got to say, I love it. I love it. What's amazing, though, is that the, the left wing, th this demonstrates what the Supreme Court is to the left. The left wing media agree with Trump. The New York Times has an editorial today where they say Donald Trump is totally right. He's totally right to rip Ginsburg. Jonathan Turley on CNN, right? He's a, a leftist, legal analyst for CNN. Here is a, he, he was actually on Fox News. Here he is explaining that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it's entirely inappropriate what she said. Trump on this issue, you tell me he's entirely right. She was out of line. He is right. And the, what, what she did is not just wrong ethically. It undermines the integrity of the Supreme Court. It's a very serious blow to mm -hmm. that court. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court has many flaws, but one of its great tenets is this impartiality and this separation from politics. And what Justice Ginsburg did was undermine that tradition. So what was she doing? And what was she? Why? I mean, do you think people vote based on what Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinks? Why, why would she do this? Well, unfortunately, I think that many of these justices have become enthralled with what I call the age of the celebrity justice. Uh, they're increasingly going to audiences. Uh, they're enjoying this limelight. And in my view, it's, it's a terrible trend. I preferred the old model, where justices spoke entirely through their opinions. But I think you see this sort of corrosive effect on the judgment of justices in this interview. Uh, but many of these justices have committed unethical acts in the past. A majority of them have committed acts that would have been serious matters for lower just judges. Mm -hmm. But they consider themselves beyond the rules of ethics okay, so, in terms of enforceability. Okay, wow. so I will say this. I actually like that Ruth Bader Ginsburg went after Trump. Not because I dislike Trump. I think Ginsburg is one of the world's least moral human beings. I think that Ginsburg has been an awful justice. She's a, she's a pro-abortion fanatic. She hates the Constitution. She said years ago that she'd prefer the South African Constitution to the American Constitution because of, obviously, all the liberty and prosperity that's been had in South Africa in recent years since the advent of that Constitution. Yeah, the, 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 the fact that she said this, the reason I like it is because I like when the mask comes off. I like reality. As I say, I root for reality. And because I root for reality, I don't think that the court is an apolitical body. I think they're a very political body. And so I like when they go out there and undermine their own authority. I like when they undermine their own credibility. She has no credibility. She's not an objective person. She's not somebody who cares about the Constitution. She's a politician. You know she came from the National Organization for Women. That's where Ruth Bader Ginsburg came from. And just like Thurgood Marshall came from the NAACP, she came from the NOW. Right? The fact is that she is a deeply, deeply political woman. And that's okay. That's okay. I have a solution. Take away the power of judicial review from a political Supreme Court because we don't have a super legislature in this country, and I don't need Democrats telling me what to do in the name of the Constitution. So I like what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. I also note that the media are unbelievable on this stuff. So the, 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 the Associated Press ran a headline where they said something like, New York Times rips notorious RBG. Right? This is what they're calling her now. Right? That's, this is a journalistic... This is a, a, a journalistic organization 
And supposedly, it is now okay to call a sitting United States Supreme Court justice notorious RBG to make her cool. I remember when they were calling him Clarence T. Remember that? Like for Clarence Thomas? Or they were calling Justice Scalia, Biggie Scalia? I remember that. No, I don't remember that because that's idiotic. That's idiotic. So the, the media are totally on her side because that's what they do. Because that's what the, that's what the media do. So, all right. I think that we are now at the point. Let's see. Is it time for things that we like and things? That, yeah, let's do some. Let's do some things we like and things we hate. Come on. Okay. So we're gonna start. With, we've been doing surprise endings this week, and this is an oldie but goodie. In this particular surprise ending, it's a movie called Witness for the Prosecution. If you've never seen it, it's a it's a it's a really good movie. It's a really entertaining old movie. Uh, Charles Lawton and Marlena Dietrich, uh, and um, and it's 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 really um, it's really fun. And it's really well acted. And it's very clever. And if you, if you don't know what's coming, it's, it's got a really clever little ending. So here, here's the, the trailer for Witness for the Prosecution. This is, I think, late 40s. Witness for the Prosecution. The most electrifying entertainment of our time. The stunning climax to a half century of motion picture suspense. The setting is London. The story, two people in love. A murder and a trial, climaxed by the ten most breath-stopping minutes you've ever lived. The cast, Tyrone Power, in love with a woman who holds his life in her beautiful hands. Charles Lawton, in the most scintillating role of his brilliant career. Marlena Dietrich, the woman of mystery, a fascinating question mark. Okay, so it's, it's directed by Billy Wilder, who's a terrific director, all-time director. Uh, it's a it's a really good and then it says at the very end of that preview by the way that that it, notice to patrons they're advised not to take their seats during the last few minutes right to preserve the secret of the surprise ending so this is this is a movie that's very famous for its surprise ending and it is a good film okay other things that I like so we're gonna do Bible verses on Wednesday I've decided so we can do mailbag on Thursday so let's do Bible verses of the week so the the parsha this week. Uh, comes from Numbers. The Parsha is, of course, the section of the Torah that Jews read. We read a different section every week all the way through the year. So by the end of the year, we've gone through the entire five books of Moses. And we do this every year, which is why Orthodox Jews tend to know this stuff pretty well. So Numbers 27 through 12. So this is actually the, the critical moment uh, in, in the Torah where God tells Moses, basically, you're not going into the land, right? You're, you're going to die out here in the wilderness. It's really a tragedy. I mean, the, the Torah is really a tragedy. It's, if, if it's about Moses, it's a tragic, tragic story, right? I mean, he, he serves his entire life for this people who are ungrateful, and they're constantly ripping on him, and they're constantly being stiff-necked and terrible with God. And then Moses takes them all the way to the brink, and then they don't go forward because they're, again, recalcitrant. And then God says, sorry, you can't go into the land, you're going to die here, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really terrible. Here in, in Numbers 7 through 12, God speaks to Moses. He says, take the staff. The people are, are whining again about how they don't have water. And so the Lord says to Moses, take your staff, assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, speak to the rock in their presence, and it'll give forth its water. Now, this is the second time we've had a rock magic trick with God. So back in, back in Exodus, there's a rock magic trick where God actually tells Moses hit the rock, and Moses hits the rock, and the water comes out. This time, he says, speak to the rock, and Moses instead takes the staff, and Moses and Aaron assemble the congregation, and they say, Now listen, you rebels, can we draw water for you from this rock? He hits the rock, the water comes forth. And then God says to Moses and Aaron, Since you did not have faith in me to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, you shall not bring this assembly to the land which I have given them. So that seems like a pretty harsh punishment, right? I mean, it's pretty harsh. Like, God said, speak to the rock. He hits the rock, and God's like, okay, well, I guess you're going to die now. Like, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty brutal on, on Moses. Until what, what you realize is that every human being has a designed role in the universe. Every human being has a godly designed role in the universe. Moses' role could not extend into the land. The reason that Moses' role couldn't extend into the land is because Moses, as a conduit between the nation and God, was in danger of almost becoming an idol to the people. And this is why when God takes Moses, we still don't know where Moses is buried because the idea was that God didn't want that to become kind of a, a, an idolatrous shrine to, to Moses. Moses also was a, a national leader but he wasn't a war leader. And the person who takes Israel forth into the land is less a spiritual leader, Joshua, than he is a, than he is a, a military leader. And he just does everything God says. The book of Joshua is about Joshua going around doing brutal things that God tells him to do, basically. Moses is not that guy. Moses is the guy who argues with God, who speaks face-to-face -face with God, as God says later in Deuteronomy. Right? He speaks face-to-face. -face. 
the fact that what what happened so what actually happened here what actually happened here is that Moses you have to understand in the preceding segments of the Bible just before this Aaron who's Moses' brother and his spokesperson Aaron is is getting really smacked around by life right we had that we've already had the golden calf Aaron's two sons die after they approach the altar and God consumes them right they die because they they bring unauthorized sacrifices and they die the people have now rebelled in, in last week's Parsha. Korach, Korah, he came and he, he rebelled against Moses and against Aaron. And he says, we want to be the priest. It shouldn't be your brother. This is nepotism. We're going to be the priest now because we're all capable of being priests. Why does it have to be your brother? There's been this national rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and particularly against Aaron, because Moses always has God on his side. But Aaron is, is well, he's a godly man. He doesn't get a lot of direct communication from God. It's mostly through Moses uh, in the Bible. And so Moses here, what's happening is that people are, are angry, and they're angry at Moses and Aaron. And Moses, in defense of his brother, sides with his own family, sides with his own brother, above the people and above God, more importantly. right? He doesn't say, in the name of God, I'm bringing forth this water. He says, can we draw water for you from this rock? We, not being me and God, we being me and Aaron. Can the two, uh, the two of us, can we draw the water forth from this rock? My family is more important. And it's a, it's a moment of passion for, for Moses because he's angry. But this is what we all do, right? And this is the danger. The danger in, in human life is siding with your tribe, siding with your family, siding with any institution over the will of God. You do that, you're going to get yourself in a lot of hot water. And that's exactly what happens with Moses here. So Moses says, we'll do it for you, me and Aaron. The next thing that happens, God says, you can't go in. And Moses says, okay, well, who are you going to appoint the leader? Can it be my son? And God says, no. God says, it's going to be Joshua, right? It's not, now it's out of your family. So I think it's worthwhile explaining what happened there because the idea here is, number one, you have a preordained role in life that it is your job to find and fulfill. And we don't all get to see, we don't all get to enter the promised land, but it's our job to take uh, take the world as far as we can. But point number two is that the minute that you begin valuing any institution over the will of God, which, by the way, would include individual freedom and decency and morality, you get yourself in real hot water. There's no comparison between Moses and you know the situation in Penn State, but this week there was a news item where it turned out that Joe Paterno knew from the 70s that his defense coach, Jerry Sandusky, was involved in basically molesting kids. And everybody in, in the immediate vicinity apparently knew that, that this guy was involved. And the allegiance to Penn State football was so great that nobody said anything and all these kids get molested. This is true throughout human history. You wonder how great brutality, great evil happens? Great evil happens when people become fixed on the importance of any institution over the good. Moses wasn't going to do anything like that, of course. I mean, that's, this is this momentary lapse, and that's what makes it so tragic. Moses tries to repent. God says, sorry. You know, he holds Moses to a higher standard, because if you're speaking face-to-face with God, you don't get to make these kinds of mistakes is sort of the idea. But it's, it's a lesson that, that we all should take from it, because we're all on, a, all on a lower level than Moses. We should take the, the more commonplace lesson. Okay, time for a couple of things that I hate. So first of all, Matt Damon just keeps saying things. Matt Damon. And Matt Damon, he's, uh, he's on all these posters for Jason Bourne holding a gun. He's very anti-gun, but he makes lots of money off guns. Now he says that he's frightened at the prospect of a Trump presidency, which is maybe the only reason I can think of to vote for Donald Trump. You know, I'm really frightened at the prospect of a, of a Trump presidency and what that would mean. It's, it's, not, it's not even a Republican-Democrat issue. I, I, I'm, I'm genuinely concerned about his temperament. Um, somebody who's sending, you know, photos of their hands to people. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, you, you, if, if it's that easy to get under your skin, you should not be able to wield that much power. It's just too, too dangerous for the rest of us. Interesting you would leave the country or something. Sorry, sorry, like sorry thank you. Uh, I, no, I think, I think I'd try to work within the system to make it better, but uh, I, I don't think I'd leave. Okay, so, you know, unfortunately he won't leave if Trump wins. So that takes away my only reason to vote Trump. So there, so there it is, aside from Hillary being awful, awful, awful. Okay, so final thing that I hate. Everybody's making this big deal out of this Pokemon Go thing. I, I'm not a Pokemon person. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what the deal is with the Pokemon thing. Or why it's there, or why people care about it. Apparently, it just sort of pops up random places, and you're supposed to sort of chase it around. Apparently, there's one on my desk right now. <laughs> but, but in any case, this, this Pokemon thing is just sitting around places, and you're supposed to go around. People are finding it in, like, Auschwitz. And they, they, they said, please don't look for Pokemon Go in Auschwitz. They found it like, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial. 
And finding it at Arlington National Cemetery, idiots are like running around at Arlington National Cemetery for looking for this kind of stupid crap. Okay, number one, if you're not a 16-year-old girl, stop it. Go get a life. Go find people worth taking pictures with, as opposed to a digitally created thingamabobber that you can take a picture with on your phone. It's not real, gang. And if it were real, it might be a vicious small animal. You don't know. So it's, it's uh, this whole thing is uh, – but this is what it takes to get adults out of the house. Now, we're all 10-year-old children. We've turned into 10 – I remember Pokemon was a thing when I was, like, 10. I remember, like, all the girls were into Pokemon when I was 10. I'm now 31, 30, well, 32 now. Um, it's time to get over it. If you're an adult, start acting like it. Yeah, go take a picture with your kid. I understand that you think kids are dispensable and Pokemon is, is absolutely necessary to your life, but you might try to reverse that polarity a little bit. It turns out that there are better things to do in life than chase around Pokemon. Okay, it's a fun little thing, I understand, but the, the, whenever you see these kind of broad obsessions with stupid little things, and the only thing that can get you outside off your butt is to run around chasing a digital character on behalf of a major multinational corporation like Nintendo, I would suggest that you, my friend, are a sucker. And I would also suggest that you might need to get some new hobbies because, I mean, really. It's one thing if I have kids and I'm running around with my kids doing it. If I'm a 21-year-old guy and I'm single and I'm just running around with like my guy friends doing this, dude, find a girl. I mean, like, really. Get, get some semblance of a life. And, that, and coming from me, that, that, that means something. Okay, so, so there will be much more tomorrow. We'll do the mailbag tomorrow. You have to subscribe at Daily Wire if you want to be part of the mailbag, and then you can email me, and then I can make fun of you on air, or I can compliment you on air, more likely the former than the latter, but take your shot. So dailywire.com to subscribe and be part of the mailbag. We will be back tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.